Thank you for listening to the Renovation Church podcast. We're a family that believes you matter, and together we can do something that matters. We hope that this podcast aids you in your spiritual journey toward Jesus. If we can serve you on that journey, please let us know by visiting our website, renovationchurch.com. We always love to hear how the ministry of renovation is impacting your life. The best way to let us know is by leaving a review or tagging us on social media. Wherever you are in the world, know that Jesus loves you and we love you. Enjoy the podcast. Well, it sure is good to see you today. I missed you last week. Miss you. Uh, I was in Raleigh uh, preaching at a church uh, called Hope Community Church and uh, great church there, people that I love dearly. I get to go there a couple times a year and they send their greetings back to you as well. Uh, before we jump in, just a couple of things to remember. Uh, we are just a few weeks away from Easter, which is insane to me. Uh, and uh, so two things. Number one, as I've been saying every single week for weeks, uh, our service times are changing to 9 and 11. <laughs> and they're going to they're gonna stay that way. Uh, following Easter, they're going to stay that way at 9 and 11. And then two, who is your one more? Who is your one more? Uh, and Or two more or three more. Or as one sister told me, she got five she bringing for Easter. Uh, who is your one more that you want to see encounter uh, the powerful message of the good news of Jesus. I'm preaching on that verse on Easter, by the way. Uh, he or she whom the Son makes free is free indeed. Okay, so who do you know that needs to hear that word and, and, uh, and needs to be a part of a life-giving community? Uh, so I want you to remember those two things uh, as we prepare for Easter. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the spiritual rhythm of simplicity. And it is quite fitting that uh, somewhere in the course of the last message, uh, I flexed too hard and, and I split the forearm on my jacket, but you'll know why I'm going to keep it here in a minute. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for meeting us here today in the house, and we pray that you would continue to be with us as we examine and explore your word and that our hearts would be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. You want to be happy, yes? You want to be happy, Yes? Okay, everybody wants to be happy. All right, that is, a, that is an inarguable point. In fact, uh, the great African theologian and church father, uh, Augustine, famously said that every person uh, or every man whatsoever, his condition desires to be happy. And so there's no argument there that, that the pursuit of happiness, seeking happiness, desiring happiness is kind of a chief driver in human nature and, and, and woven into the fabric of who we are. And there is a gospel, and I'm going to throw this up in air quotes, a gospel of postmodernity, a gospel of Western sentimentality, a gospel of our social order that tells tells us that uh, in order to be happy and in order to find the happiness that we are seeking, what do we need to do? We need to get more stuff. We need to have more things. We, we need to keep up. I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, most of you. We need to keep up with the Joneses, right, or the Jenkins or the Vandersloths, you know, one of those names. That's, the more you have the happier you are. That is the message of the gospel that is being preached in this Western sentimentality. So go ahead and get that new vehicle, even though 
your old one is still fine. And go ahead and buy those new shoes because you need them. Kill them, girl. Go ahead and move into that bigger house, even though you're not using all of the rooms in the house that you currently live in. Go ahead and rent a bigger apartment because it's a status symbol to show the world where you have arrived. That's the message of this gospel. And it has not always been this way. It hasn't been. Uh, consumption being touted as the primary means or mechanisms or path to happiness has not always been this way. In fact, our nation and the people in it have only recently come to define happiness as having and accumulating. You see, there was a purposeful shift. And, and for those of you who are conspiracy theorists, you can acknowledge yourselves. Conspiracy theorists in the room, I want to tell you something. You were right. You've been right all along. There was actually a group of politicians and business leaders that got together in the early part of the 20th century, and they decided what kind of economy we would have. And the economy that they decided we would have would be an economy of consumption, an evil plot actually hatched by an actual villain, which fed the lie to our parents and our grandparents, and for some of you, our great-grandparents fed the lie to them that in order to be happy, they had to have more things. In fact, one Wall Street banker at the time said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. Did you guess that? People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. E.S. Cowdrick, a pioneer of industrial relations, called this new plan that they were hatching the new economic gospel of consumption. Have mercy. One journalist in 1927 observed this about America, that a change has come over our democracy. It is called consumptionism. The American citizen's first importance to his country is now no longer that of a citizen, but that of a consumer. You old enough to remember 9-11? You remember that? I was in university at the time. Do you remember what happened afterwards? The president of the United States got up, and he didn't say rally around the country. He didn't say rally around the troops. He didn't say pray for us that we will know how to respond to this grievous act. He said, go shopping. Go shopping so that we may bolster the economy of this great nation. This is what we are. And this deceitful shift, well, once you're hip to it, how does it make you feel? It makes me feel manipulated. It makes you feel manipulated, used, tricked into believing that Killing myself to collect more things is actually going to lead me to the abundant life that I so desperately desire. It is wrong for us to have been manipulated this way into believing this lie, groomed and, listen to the word, trained to believe that by consuming and collecting that we would end our quest for happiness when in fact all it has done is left our country indebted, overworked, and overwhelmed. Many of us sit in that seat right now. And at the same time, guess what? It never delivered on the promise to make us happy. It never delivered. Now, money does make you happier. If you're poor, if you're poor, 
lifting people out of poverty definitely does make them happier. But listen to this, only to a certain point. In fact, there was a Gallup poll of 450,000 surveys that were processed by Dr. Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel Prize winning psychologist, and Dr. Angus Deaton, a renowned economist, and they concluded that your overall happiness and well-being does rise with more money, but only to a certain point. In fact, here's what they said. No matter where you live, your emotional well-being is as good as it is going to get at $75,000. And money is not going to make it any better beyond that point. It is like you hit some sort of ceiling. And you cannot get emotional well-being, read happiness, much higher just by having more money. Now, inflation was 8% last year. So why don't we round that up to a solid 77 and a half thousand and we still sit in the same seat. You see, it seems that as we arrive at the place that most Westerners would understand as middle class, that we kind of hit peak happiness. And once we hit peak happiness, even if we get more money, our happiness either declines or plateaus. And I understand, listen, I understand. I understand this perfectly because I used to, too, be crushed and burdened under consumer debt. I lived this way, and my purchasing power and my accumulated assets made me feel like I had made it, especially coming from the family that I came from. We came out of the country. My grandfather was a sharecropper. My father worked hard to become a chemical engineer at Exxon Chemical, and he told me almost every day, son, this is how far we've come. Keep going. And so when I made it, I thought that I was bringing my whole family on my back living under a crushing weight of consumer debt to show that I had elevated our status. The problem is, none of it ever made me happier. When I signed a multi-million dollar contract with the NFL, I didn't feel any happier. And so that created a conflict for me, a bit of a, of a lostness in my emotions. And I drifted in and out of these cycles and in and out of these struggles for years right into our marriage when I had my beautiful wife now caught up in my crushing debt. I know that's not just me. So let's be honest today. And now my debt became our debt. And then in 2007, something happened. I went to Cambodia for the first time. And we were told ahead of time, don't bring a lot, because the van that we were going to be riding in was barely big enough to hold all of the people that were going to be there. It was certainly not going to be big enough to bring any exorbitant amount of luggage. And so I was at home like a crazy person uh, trying to match up outfits for a mission trip, right? <laughs> like I said, I'm a, listen, my whole, listen, until I die, if I die in this pulpit, I'm going to tell you the truth, hoping that you will tell yourself the truth about yourself. So here I was getting ready to go to one of the hottest parts of the world, matching up outfits and trying to figure out how many pairs of shoes I would be able to bring. Well, you know, you got to look right for Facebook when they take the picture when you're doing the good thing with the little children. But eventually I pared it down in one bag because I had to out of pure necessity. And in fact, I think I remember I packed like a handful of plain white tees because you know, nothing better in the summer than a plain white tee. And a couple pair of cargo shorts when those were still a thing. <laughs> and the shoes that I had on my feet. And I headed over 
to Cambodia. And when I got there, the devastating poverty that I encountered, it shattered me. Now, I had seen incredible poverty. I hadn't seen incredible rural poverty. That's our roots, right? In, in the family line, I was donated to the family trailer, right? Sitting by the bayou, that's my roots. And I've seen incredible urban poverty because I have family members living in Section 8 in disenfranchised housing in Baton Rouge and New Orleans. Like, I've seen that kind of poverty. But nothing ever prepared me to see women and children living in a trash dump of 35-foot mountains of trash. And it shook me. It shook me to my core. But you know what shook me more than that? More than seeing people live in that kind of poverty, what shook me was the happiness they had. Especially the followers of the way of Jesus. I almost didn't understand it. That they lived in this abject filth and yet they were happy. Though they had nothing compared to people who live in the U.S. who make at least minimum wage here, they were happy. And their happiness infected me. It changed me. It, it left me questioning the way I live and, and why I live that way. I soon came to embrace while I was there. I embraced uh, only having a couple of pair of clothes to put on because that really cut down on the time of getting ready. Fewer choices. Right? Fewer choices make life easier. If your closet looks like the Olive Garden menu, it's time for a change. In fact, I, I was so taken after my encounter with God in Cambodia that I actually called my wife and said, I want to move here. <laughs> I want to live here. It seemed a simpler and easier life. The power of simplicity and living a minimalist life had grabbed me. It freed me from debt. It freed me from impulsive buying. It freed me, and it made me a happier and more generous person because of it. And I'll share with this with you twofold. One, because I want you to be happy. <laughs> I want you to be happy. And, and I believe, listen, I believe that God wants you to be happy. You can go hear a whole sermon series on that that I preached last year. I believe God wants you to be happy. The problem is our host culture has trained us to consume and collect to be happy. And so the happiness that God facilitates doesn't feel like it measures up. Because we've been trained in another way. And we've participated in that training. Don Crowley wrote as she was reviewing my sermon this week that she didn't know whether we were victims or participants. And I wrote back, actually, it's kind of like we have Stockholm Syndrome. We're being held hostage, but we don't want to leave. Yeah. The reality is, in order to consume and collect, we've got to do what? We got to make more money. And in order to make more money, we got to do what? Work, 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 work. I'm not wearing red, I'm wearing black, thank you. We got to work. We got to work in unsustainable pace, with unsustainable hours, in unsustainable ways, which ultimately leads to what? An unhappy life. And that's not what God has for us. More than that, though, 
And this is the dangerous part. Please don't miss this. This is the, this is the insidious part. More than that, excessive accumulation eventually contaminates your heart. It gets in there. It gets in there. Or to quote the late great Biggie Smalls, more money, more problems. It gets in there. And I don't believe for a second any one of you wants an unhappy life or a contaminated heart. I don't believe you want to spend your life to get money rather than spending money to live life. Or another way to say that, I don't think you want to spend your time to get money when you could be spending money to get time. Because only the former is abundance. And so what I would have you to consider today for just a few moments is what if Jesus was right? What if Jesus had the right idea about happiness and abundance and life the way it's meant to be lived? Would you follow it? You see, Jesus, if you didn't know, circled this subject of money and possessions and things more than he did heaven or hell. In fact, he can be quoted as saying, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. He can also be quoted as saying, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But what we're going to examine his words today are from the tax collector's gospel, Matthew, in one of his teachings where he did three small teachings on money and one long teaching on worry. And here's what he said. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves. Thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters. All of this flows together. It's from one place. No one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to mammon. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? In this part of his ancient sermon, Jesus communicates four critical truths about money and accumulation. I'm going to walk through them. If you've got the Bible app open, you'll see it there, and you can fill them in the blanks as we go along. And the first critical truth is this. Do not excessively accumulate material things. Do not excessively accumulate material things. In other words, put a limit on what you own. Put a limit on what you own. Why? Because everything you own will eventually disintegrate. Even Bentleys are going to end up in a dump yard one day. They will. Everything you own will eventually disintegrate, so don't put too much stock in it. Or, Jesus says, if it doesn't disintegrate, one day somebody might snatch it. Somebody might run up on you. They're taking Warren's wealth. You've got to be old enough to remember that. Man, come on now. All my Gen Xers say amen. If you don't know, that was regulators by Warren G. and Nate Dog. They've taken Warren's wealth. Somebody might run up on you. 
And some of us have experienced that and experienced that sense of violation. I felt it when our building got robbed by contractors we hired to work on the building. And they looking at the camera as they're leaving with our things. <laughs> Brazen. I'm like, Lord, be a fence that keeps me from smacking this man's face. Listen. The problem is suddenly, suddenly the things for which we give so much of our life are gone. In a stock market crash, gone. In a change in the economy, gone. In inflation, gone. All of a sudden your $100,000 salary is $95,000, gone. It can be gone in a minute. So why would you put your whole life on that? Rather than invest all of your time and your energy, Jesus says, in things that get old or go out of style, yeah. right? One day skinny jeans will go out of style and I will be free. <laughs> I'm not wearing these by choice. I won't point at anybody. I'm just going to blink twice say I'm unsafe <laughs> if I say anything further. Everything's going to go out of style. Everything's going to get old. Everything's going to get old. Or worse, it'll be taken from your home or your person. Jesus says, so don't invest in that. Instead, put your life into your relationship with God. Put your life into your relationship with his church. Put your life into relationship with other people. Listen, put your life into serving, which has been scientifically proven to be the source for our greatest happiness. Put your life into things that last is the point that Jesus is making. That is where you will find true happiness. Now, against the potential objection that consumption and accumulation don't affect one's spiritual condition, Jesus adds in verse 21, wherever your treasure is, that the desires of your heart will be also. In other words, he's saying that your affections follow your investment. Okay? How you use what you have reveals what you love. That's what Jesus is saying. Can I contemporize it? If I were to download your bank statement or your credit card statement, I can tell you exactly what your primary priorities are and where your heart is. And you could do the same for me. That's what Jesus is saying here, that, that your affections inherently follow how you use what God has given you. Now, what's the opposite? Focus instead on storing heavenly treasures through simple and generous living. In other words, live in a way where it is obvious that your heart is with Yahweh and not with mammon. Jesus' second critical principle is this. Have a clear and healthy vision for how you will use what you have to serve God and people. So you see how this goes together. Number one, don't, don't get too much. Limit yourself. And within the things that you've limited yourself to, have a clear vision for how you're actually going to use those things to serve God and to serve other people. That's what he's on about here in verse 22 and 23. When in, in the first century, if somebody said to you, you have a healthy eye, okay, Somebody said that phrase to you like, hey, you got a healthy eye. It wouldn't just mean like your eyes are good at seeing. What that phrase meant in the first century is that you lived in a way that was focused and intentional and that you had a deep concern for the poor. 
Another way to say it is when you look at the world, when you look at the world, you navigate it in a focused and intentional way and you look for needs to meet and you meet them to the best of your ability. An unhealthy eye, of course, will be the exact opposite. It will be the exact opposite. Just as our natural eye, Jesus says, in some sense, affects our entire bodies, so does our vision. So does our ambitions. Where we fix our eyes and our hearts affect our entire life. And just as seeing, uh, just as seeing eyes give light to the body, a single-minded vision to serve God and to serve people actually adds the meaning to our lives for which we so desperately long. That's what Jesus is saying. And inversely, just as natural blindness in some senses leave us in the dark, unable to see, hence an ignoble and selfish ambition plunges us into moral darkness, making us intolerant and rootless and abusive and sometimes inhuman. In other words, Every unjust and broken system from chattel slavery to sex slavery is rooted right here. When our eye is unhealthy, our ambitions are limitless. And who we have to walk through to get them, it doesn't matter. Another way to say that, another way to say that positively is if we have a clear vision, a spiritual vision, then our lives will be filled with purpose and drive. But if our vision becomes clouded with unredeemed ambition and consumption, then we will lose the value of life. Where you set your vision determines how you invest your life. Period. Where you set your vision determines how you invest your life. Now, Jesus has explained to us, right, that there are two choices. Two treasures, God or mammon. Two visions, healthy or unhealthy. And behind those choices between two treasures and two visions is another choice between two masters. Between two masters. How we view and use money determines who we serve. Full stop. How we view and use money determines who we serve. It is a choice between Yahweh and mammon, okay? A choice between earthly and heavenly treasure, a choice between unhealthy and healthy vision, a choice between Yahweh and mammon. Look what he says in verse 24. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and be enslaved to mammon. Mammon is a principality, a demon, a demon that was worshipped as a god in Jesus' time. And the culmination of mammon worship is that our worth would be shaped by what? By what we have, by what we accumulate, by money, by possessions, by material wealth, by consumption. Or, now that's a little bit boomerish. Millennials don't necessarily like to collect things. They like to collect experiences. What are you talking about, Pastor? I don't have anything. I'm just going to spend the next six weeks in Bali. (laughs) Bucket list. Check. But you see what I'm saying? 
Now, that's not wrong. If you, listen, if you got it to go to Bali, go to Bali. Take me. <laughs> but if your experiences begin to shape your worth, And how many likes you get on a picture determines how valuable the trip was. That's the fruit of mammon worship. Because now that's what's shaping your identity. Now what's interesting in this verse is you would think Jesus would say, you should not serve two masters. Right? But he didn't say should not. What does he say? Cannot. It's not possible. It's not, it, it, it's not that you've got to try a little harder to hold them both in tension. No, it's not possible. Why? Because your affections are going to be directed to the thing that you worship. And if you have your worth shaped by mammon, then eventually you are going to be enslaved to that principality. And there will be no room for worshiping God. God can only be served with exclusive devotion. You cannot live in the freedom Jesus offers in the life abundant he procured and be intoxicated by the excessive accumulation of our host culture. So we have to make a choice between creator and principality, between the glorious and personal God and the expendable offspring of mammon. We either serve God wholly or not at all, right? And that's why Jesus gave his life. Jesus gave his whole life for our whole life. He didn't give his whole life so that we could give him the parts that we were comfortable with. He gave it all so that we would respond and give it all. Not so that we could earn what he was giving, but so that he could gift it to us. We follow God all the way or we don't follow him at all. That is the truth. Now, after all of that, Jesus has invited us what? To consider the alternatives in front of us and to weigh them carefully, to weigh them carefully. And then watch what he does. He says, you got a choice between two treasures, you got a choice between two visions, you got a choice between two masters, and then he connects those choices to worry. Jesus was brilliant. Jesus was brilliant. He connects it directly to worry. Only after you consider these things and choose rightly can you be free from worry. That's why he says, therefore, don't worry. This is why I told you not to worry, because if you choose heavenly treasures, and if you choose a clear vision, and if you choose what? God over mammon, then you don't have anything to worry about. But if you choose the opposite, then you will worry. Why? Because worshiping mammon produces worry. Worshiping Yahweh produces comfort. Worshiping mammon produces worry. Worshiping Yahweh produces comfort. Nobody in here wants to live a life of worry, right? Nobody. But if we worship mammon, we will worry. We will. And worry is the exact opposite of happiness. It is the exact opposite of happiness. Now, if you're investigating a relationship with Jesus or maybe in a period of deconstruction or trying to figure out what you believe about this God thing, then the idea that you need to worship God exclusively probably feels a little foreign. Understand that. But the alternative, if I can, the alternative is what? That we continue to live according to the gospel of consumption that was decided for us without our vote. 
and continue to chase and accumulate things that then become our identity and cease to just be things. And that's not a full and abundant life. In fact, we know almost instinctively that more things don't equal more happiness. We know that. And the groundbreaking study that came out of almost half a million surveys told us that. At $75,000, we've kind of hit peak happiness. And so what is the choice before us? The choice before us is to follow Jesus out of this prison, to break free from this false promise, to be released of this false gospel and learn how to live life in a way that actually works for our good. And the way that we do that, listen, the way that we do that and what we've been talking about this entire time is a spiritual practice of simplicity. The spiritual practice of simplicity. Now, simplicity or minimalism, for those who maybe are outside of Christianity, is not about living with nothing. It's about living with less. It's about living with less. In fact, Joshua Becker, a follower of Jesus and former pastor who writes about minimalism full-time, defined minimalism this way, the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. Another way to say it from Richard Foster, one of my favorite pastors and mystics, uh, he defines it this way, that simplicity is an inward reality that can be seen in an outward lifestyle of choosing to leverage time and money and talents and possessions toward what matters most. And that's why we don't have a coffee table in Jesus' name. <laughs> Y'all pray for my wife. She's living under a tyrannical rule of minimalism. So like, can I put a vase in there? No. Jesus doesn't want that. <laughs> I promise I'm not a bad person. I just want to follow Jesus. What are you hearing in this? That this is not just about your stuff. This is about your whole life. This is about the way you viewed your life. This is about the way you live your life. And this invitation to a life of simplicity to pare down all of our resources, listen, to their irreducible, practical, and redemptive value. Did you hear that? To their irreducible, practical, and redemptive value. And I'm in the middle of it. I'm not judging you. I'm sitting in the seat saying, hey, PL, you pulled a shoebox off the shelf the other day that had dust on it, which means that you have not worn those shoes in a long time. Why do you have them? And I'm already a minimalist. I wasn't joking. We have no coffee table. It is a source of tension. It is the root topic of our therapy sessions. <laughs> and even as already practicing minimalists, I would say that there's still a third of the things in our house that we could live without. What about you? That's the invitation. That is the invitation to a life of simplicity. I'm going to say those three things again because I believe they hit and I wanted to get into your heart. Paring down all of our resources to their irreducible, practical, and redemptive value. And so even though I shredded my jacket through pure flex power in the first service, it's still usable until it's not. Now, I had a couple of haters try to tell me to take it off. You can't go out like that. 
And I decided that I stand with Jesus. <laughs> now, you hear this idea of simplicity and minimalism, and you probably think to yourself, listen, I hear you, Pastor, but that's for rich people. Well, you're right, partially. You want me to tell you why? Because if you make $25,000 a year, you're rich. You're in the top 10% of the world's wealth. And if you make $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealth. The top 1%. And so a conversation about minimalism in this context, very valid. Very valid. In fact, I learned this the hard way in Cambodia. You see, I was walking alongside this young woman who was kind of giving us tours through different places. And, and, and I really believe it was the Lord. And I prayed and, and I handed her a $20 bill. And she began crying. And I mean like crying, crying, like profuse, like, like that shake cry. Like, you know, those of us who grew up being sent outside to get your own switch, like, <laughs> like that kind of cry. Right? And then you try to be slick and you bring back this like, little wispy thing and then like, oh, well, let me go pick it then. Right? And then you know it's on. That kind of cry. And I turned to one of our translators, Myung, and I said, why is she crying like this? And he said to me, because, Pastor, you have just given her nearly a month's wages. $20. We can burn $20 without thinking about it. We got jackets in our closet right now we're going to put on next winter that we didn't get to wear this winter and we're going to put our hands in our pockets and $20 is going to be in there. We've washed $20 in our pocket in the washing machine and be like, dang, I lost $20. A month's wages. A month's wages. That's when I realized what the stakes really were in this situation. Stepping into simplicity opens up the depth of following the way of Jesus. It opens up the depth of following the way of Jesus. And so we're going to limit what we consume and collect for all of the above reasons that we've named and further so that we can be more generous people. Why? Because giving makes us happier than getting. Jesus taught us that. It's better to give than it is to receive. So how do we move towards simplicity? How do we move toward it? It's very simple. If you want to live a rich and happy life, listen to me. If you want to live a rich and happy life, it's very simple. Limit what you consume and collect so that you can be happy and free. Limit what you consume and collect so that you can be happy and free. You can start by clearing out your drawers and your closet of things that you don't use. Listen, we've got a clothing closet here for our foster care ministry. You can start there. Or give it to goodwill. Do, do whatever you want to do with it. But if you have something that you're not, listen, that is not irreducible, practical, and redemptive, somebody else can use it that way. Now, if you're not keen to pursue happiness today with everything that you are, <laughs> you're not keen to do that today, then may, maybe I'll offer you a transitional step to consider three things. Number one, before you buy anything, consider the total cost of that thing. Okay? The total cost of a car is not just the sticker price. It's the taxes, the insurance, the tires, the oil, the life of the car. 
Consider the total cost of something before you buy it, okay? Number two, maybe, just maybe, avoid impulse buying in retail therapy. Can I get a witness? All right, thank you. Thank you for being honest. Like, man, I had a bad day. I bet Jeff Bezos got the answer. Amazon.com, if you missed that, Amazon.com, where I can get nearly anything straight to my door for all of my happiness needs. No impulse buying. If you see something you really want it, hit the pause button, go home, think about it. Decide if you need it. Okay? Decide if you need it. And I'm an impulse buyer. I'm like, man, I just got this bonus. I'm getting a car. And Brianna's like, but we can't have a coffee table? <laughs> okay? Number three, consider regularly giving things away. Consider regularly giving things away. Even if you do just those three things, you will be well on your way to a happier life. And if you choose not to follow the way of Jesus, here's the deal. Mammon and his instruments of bondage, consumerism and advertising, will keep you in prison to their power. And your things will remain identities and not just be things. Now, like most people in the world, you enter today, as you enter most days, on a quest for happiness. That is our base driver. Even when you're not in touch with it, that is what's driving your decision making. And so the invitation today is clear. You can be happy. You can be the happiest person on the planet. The way to do that is to follow the way of Jesus into a life of simplicity. But the benefit's not just for you. Here's the beautiful thing. Not only will you be and become a happier person, a more free person, but you will be a witness to people who are far from God of why it actually matters to follow God, okay, and what true happiness can look like. And that's the invitation before us all. And by God, I hope you take it because I am as invested in your happiness as you are. But more than that, God our Father is. Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that you would seal this message to our hearts and that we would be truly transformed by it. Whew, Father, help us. Help us. Help us to see you as our ultimate treasure. Help us to see you as our ultimate treasure, Lord God, and to see things rightly. Not that they are wrong, but are they practical? Are they redemptive? Are they needed? And Lord God, it's not wrong to enjoy things, but help us keep them from shaping our worth and our value and our identity. And let us be shaped by you only. In Jesus' name, amen.